0: Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 142. A quick plug before we get started, and no, it's not for Audible, it's for me. Uh, for a while now, I've been talking about how I wanted to produce some extra content that I could sell to help support the show. Well, I took the recent St. Patrick's Day special, tweaked it a little and now I'm selling it as a kind of mini audio documentary. If you follow the show on Facebook, then you've probably already seen the cover I created. Uh, So the documentary is now available through Podbean, the site where I host my feed. Uh, Podbean doesn't really have an online store. What they do is when you submit premium content that you want to sell, they generate a link for you that you can embed in your websites, etc. So I put the link on the Weekend Out Facebook page, just check out the recent post, and I'll also embed it in the show description for this episode. And if you follow that link or copy and paste it, it should take you to a PayPal checkout where for the meager sum of 99 cents, you can purchase the audio documentary, which I've entitled A Brief History of St. Patrick. I believe what happens then is Podbean will send you a link via email with download instructions. If you have any trouble, uh, you shouldn't, I hope, uh, just contact me via Facebook or Twitter or theweekindoubt at gmail.com, and I'll help you out, even if it means sending the file to you myself. And the good news is that it's also available on iTunes. The bad news is the pricing's wrong. I've never sold music or audio tracks online before, so uh, I'm new to all of this. It turns out that unless you meet some pretty stringent requirements, you can't deal with iTunes yourself directly. You have to use a kind of aggregator or middleman service. And here's some inside baseball and uh, the irony of me using a sports analogy. Um, So in order to deal with iTunes directly when trying to get your stuff in uh, their store, you need at least 20 albums in your discography and a whole alphabet soup of business and serial numbers and codes or whatever. So most people, as I did, uh, use a middleman uh, like CD Baby, that's a funny name, CD Baby, or uh, TuneCore, which I used. I was so excited about publishing my content that I went with the default pricing, which is $9.99, without realizing it. Uh, $9.99 for a 15-minute documentary? Steep, I know. So I already entered a request to bring the pricing down to $1.99, the lowest I can go for a uh, single track that's over 10 minutes. So it might take a few business days for the price to drop. Uh, In the meantime, if you'd like to help the show out by buying the St. Patrick uh, audio documentary, you might be better off using the Podbean link for now. Plus, it's a uh, dollar cheaper. As I mentioned, my asking price on Podbean is uh, 99 cents. I tried to price it fairly and, uh, you know, being mindful of what I'd probably be willing to pay. I'm a music and a documentary junkie, and I've paid $0.99 or $1.99 for indie audiobooks or audio-only documentaries before in the past, so I figured it it was a good price range. So if you're new to the show, you might be asking, what's a godless heathen doing selling a documentary about a Christian saint? Well, good question. Uh, As my regular listeners probably know, although I'm probably... um, I guess the best label might be an agnostic atheist. Um, Feel very comfortable calling myself a non-believer, a a, a skeptic, etc. Despite all that, I'm still enamored of... uh, Is it enamored of or enamored with? Maybe enamored of is the old-timey way. I remember reading the Lord of the Rings books. I think it was the Silmarillion as a kid. And they talk about how when elves reached a certain age they grew enamored of the sea. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm still enamored of things like uh, ancient history, mythology, folklore, even uh, religious symbolism and uh, old legends, including things like the lives of the saints. And I've, I've also long been interested in the history behind uh, the holidays. And uh, hopefully this is just one such documentary of many to come. Uh, if you've already listened to the St. Patrick special uh, when I released it originally as an episode of this podcast, you're probably wondering, if I already heard this, why should I pay to listen to it again? And well, another good question. I guess my answer would be twofold. On the one hand, it's simply a way to support the show instead of just donating 99 cents uh, via, you know... PayPal, or whatever. This way you actually get something in return, other than the joy of listening to this podcast. Huh. I say somewhat self-effacingly, but hopefully it's true. Uh, Secondly, this way, you know, for 99 cents or one ninety-nine, depending on where you buy it from, you'll get to make uh, this special, if you enjoyed it uh, the first time, a permanent part of your media collection complete with album art designed by yours truly. Uh, There I am putting that design degree to good use. Um, uh, Let's see, uh, a final thing on this subject. I was going to submit it as an audio book, but that creates a whole different set of hoops to jump through. Uh, I think iTunes requires you to submit it in book form first, if you're going to... uh, try to publish uh, your work as an audiobook. So instead, uh, i put it in the spoken word slash holiday category. Okay, now that all that uh, shameless plugging is done with, uh, I'd like to quickly thank Nick Graveland for, uh, or is it Graveland, for liking the FB page. Is that your actual last name? If so, that's pretty damn cool. Uh, Let's see. I guess I'll start with one of the more sensational ones. So Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame has made his way into the news once again by spewing yet more of his characteristically hateful and over-the-top religious rhetoric at a prayer breakfast in uh, Florida this time. Instead of just reading the transcript, I'll play the audio so you can hear it for yourselves. A warning, it's a little disturbing.
1: Two guys break into an atheist home. He has a little atheist wife and two little atheist daughters and tie him up in a chair and gag him. And then they take his two daughters in front of him and rape both of them and then shoot them. And they take his wife and decapitate her head off in front of him. And then they can look at him and say, isn't it great to not have to worry about being judged? There's no right or wrong. Now, is it, dude? And then you take a sharp knife and take his manhood and hold it in front of him say, wouldn't it be something if this was something wrong with this? But you're the one that says there's no God, there's no right, there's no wrong. So we're just having fun. We're sick in the head. If it happened to them, they probably would say something about this. It just ain't right.
0: Oh, man. So there you have it. And uh, first off, does anyone else think that Robertson kind of sounds like Charles Manson there? And I'm not even referring to the warped uh, content of that uh, little hypothetical story he told, but something about his vocal inflections and his tone of voice, something kind of uh, diabolically maniacal about uh, his delivery. And uh, one of the first things... I thought of once I picked my jaw back up off the floor was how this reminds me of uh, when I recently did that episode where I did a a list of misconceptions people have about atheists. I entitled it How to Insult an Atheist. And I talked about that old chestnut that uh, religious apologists often employ, that without God, there can be no objective morality uh, without some divine lawgiver. There's no way to objectively know right from wrong. So this is that same hackneyed argument, but just delivered in a much more vulgar and over-the-top way, I guess. And as I said in that episode, um, yeah, there might not be any objective morality. There might not be, well, you know, sometimes people talk about Concepts and ideals, almost in the sense that if any of you guys are familiar with uh, ancient Greek philosophy, um, remember Plato had that thing about the plane of ideals or whatever, where in some plane beyond the uh, kind of mortal or material realm, there existed perfect or idealized examples of everything. And I think in some way, maybe I'm kind of off, this is kind of what theologians are talking about when uh, they talk about objective morality. That absolute right and absolute wrong are either you know, etched in the hearts of men by some creator, or they exist as absolutes beyond uh, the material or whatever. And so maybe... Morality doesn't exist like that. Maybe there is, like I said, there's no objective morality. Maybe there is no absolute right or wrong in some transcendent sense. But morality is still very real. And like I talk about a lot on the show, all you have to do is look at the natural world, you know, wear a mixed bag morally in a way like our animal cousins. We seem to be wired for empathy and compassion, but also wired for uh, violence and tribalism, unfortunately. And if we look at the natural world, we see good and bad. We see plenty examples of the strong maternal instinct at work. Um, It's true, we do see awful things like cannibalism, infanticide, pitiless indifference towards the weak, et cetera, things like that. But we also see a lot of altruism and what we would call proto-ethics or proto-morality. Examples of animals like meerkats or monkeys that will holler or scream to alert the rest of the troop or, or the group that a threat is coming, even though that attracts the threat towards the individual who's offering the warning call. Uh, As I said, the maternal uh, instinct, Uh, we see things where animals will, especially, say, with, like, the great apes, where animals will share child-rearing responsibilities, where they'll groom uh, one another, um, even seem to console one another um, in times of emotional distress, and we see the strong family structure among animals, not only like the great apes, but also um, elephants, whales, uh, animals that run in packs like uh, wolves and other wild canids, things like that. We see examples of altruism and uh, group cooperation, etc., among many different animal species. And I think I was actually watching a debate with Sam Harris uh, recently. I forget who he was debating, but he was talking about morality. And he brought up a few examples of animal altruism that I had never heard of before. In one example specifically, he was talking about this study or studies that had been done where monkeys were more willing to receive an electric shock in order to spare a member of their own group from receiving one instead than they were to take a shock on behalf of a monkey that they didn't know. So, I mean, that's not perfect morality or altruism. You know, it shows a preference for um, members of one's own group, which is also what we see uh, among humans every day, where we bond with members of our own group, but we view others, at least initially, as kind of being outsiders. But luckily, and I don't know if it's because we're so evolutionarily advanced or our theory of mind is so well-developed or because we're not roving in small little bands anymore and we're constantly interacting with different groups and more people on a larger scale, we seem to be able to apply that wiring for empathy and compassion to others than just our members of our immediate group and it kind of reminds me I think Richard Dawkins often talks about this how even though that wiring for empathy may have developed originally for in-group dynamics um, you know it, it still applies generally, where if you're walking through the city and you see someone who's injured or emotionally distressed or even just looking at images of people or animals in distress or pain, even though they're not members of your own group or even members of your own species, it still tugs at you emotionally or at least hopefully it does. So I guess what I'm trying to get at with all this is, uh, you know, I don't want to rehash all my thoughts on the evolutionary roots of morality, but we know morality and ethics exist. We know that they exist. The question is, where do they come from? Those of us who are more, have more of a reason-based or scientific worldview would say a a big part of it is, um, evolutionary, where we already have the pre-existing wiring for things like empathy and compassion, concepts of right and wrong, which probably come from empathy. You're able to project and say, I don't, you know, it's kind of like what scientists call theory of mind, where you can put yourself into the shoes of another individual, or um, you're able to kind of tune in to what someone else might be feeling or thinking. They say even some animals, uh, including dogs, um, possess a kind of theory of mind. So we're able to say, build, well, building on a sense of empathy, I wouldn't like it if someone did, did this horrible thing to me. Um, I imagine it happening to the next guy and that disturbs me. So I shouldn't do it to him, you know. And of course, there are people who are devoid of empathy and compassion. We call them psychopaths. Um, But most of us, if all your uh, neural wiring is intact, you know, you probably have a a natural capacity for empathy and compassion and a uh, kind of innate sense of right and wrong. So I think a lot of it is evolutionary. And then the rest is probably environmental or, or social that innate sense of right and wrong or that uh, wiring for compassion and empathy gets kind of reinforced or buttressed by, uh, you know, the way that you're raised, et cetera. And that reminds me of another thing Sam Harris said, another uh, example. I think he was talking about how, I think he was talking about this one study where, oh, I know what it was, I know what it was. They'll have a group of, Young kids, probably like preschool or elementary aged. And then they'll ask the kid if the teacher, even though Shorey said you're not allowed to drink soda in class, suddenly tells you it's all right to have a soda in class, is that all right? And the kids will mostly say, yeah, that's all right, you know. But if you ask a kid, Is it all right to punch another kid in the face with the teacher's permission, even though she said it wasn't all right before? The kids will kind of instinctively know that's not right. You know, and certainly, you know, kids can be awful, vicious to one another. We probably all had some bad experiences uh, in school. Um, And kids can be real nasty, especially when they kind of form into packs, But at the same time, I think kids also, they do have a sense of uh, empathy, and they do often have a sense of remorse, too. You know, it's almost right after you do something bad, or once you've been removed from the pack uh, of troublemakers, and you kind of think about what you did, you know something was wrong with what you did. So I think we do have that kind of moral tool set, um, inherently. But that needs to be improved upon through uh, through nurture and others um, kind of walking us through the social norms, so to speak. And uh, for a while now, uh, and I'm gonna swear just to warn you, I've been coming up with this concept uh, in my head of uh, what I call a tough shit folder or a tough shit file, that there's some things we might not like about life, but that doesn't mean, that they're not true. And I kind of put the possible lack of objective morality into the, the tough shit folder. Um, there might, like I said, there might not be any objective morality uh, that transcends the natural world or something like that. Well, tough shit, you know, I mean, if that's the case, that's a, that's the case and we have to deal with it. And we should at least be thankful that we're wired to a degree for uh, empathy and compassion, and that we seem to get pleasure out of treating each other well, um, and that we enjoy solidarity more than we enjoy um, either receiving or inflicting pain. And I forget who brought it up uh, recently, but Someone else made a good point that, okay, let's say we give credence for the sake of argument to this idea that religion provides us with moral instruction or objective morality. Then you look at the Old Testament or you look at the Quran. And, you know, I'm not just some militant atheist who thinks that there's nothing good or or salvageable from any of the holy books as i was talking about at the top of the show with my long-standing kind of love affair with ancient history and mythology and the history of religion and things like that i do think that there's things that we can learn from most religious traditions and there's even inspirational stuff in the uh, judeo-christian bible but we have to be honest and uh acknowledge all the bad stuff in there, too. And I'm going to sound like a quote-unquote internet atheist by bringing up all the old talking points, but they're legitimate talking points. Things like the slaughter of the Amalekites and the Midianites, the you know, the violence in the book of Joshua, all the offensive uh, moral and legal prescriptions in books like Leviticus, which uh, talk about killing people for things like witchcraft and wizardry, you know. Uh, I forget which book it is that has the famous quote about uh, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. But in Leviticus, it also talks about killing people for witchcraft, uh, killing children for disrespecting their parents, uh, killing of homosexuals, killing people for adultery. Um, then, of course, you know, if you take something, it, it is... Uh, you know, perhaps as bizarrely or luridly charming as something like the uh, story of Noah might be as mythology. When you look at it um, as moral instruction, or if you take it literally, the idea of God as the great genocider, God killing the majority of all life on earth, because he found his own creations to be morally flawed. So, okay, you want to talk about objective morality, and it's usually Christians who are talking about objective morality. But then when we look at your holy book, it's a very, although there is some good stuff in there, it's also as a whole a very flawed, disturbing, and archaic source to get ones, to draw one's morality from. You know, there's there's some stories I actually find kind of beautiful, like the the story of uh, Cain and Abel. Of course, I don't think it literally happened. Uh, But I I talked before how I still, not to douche chills, but just, you know, moving chills, that I get the chills up my spine when I read that story. And there's something about the blood of Abel crying out from the soil, to God for justice and there's something about the idea of the seriousness the irrevocable loss of death and the seriousness of taking a life that's gotten across through that story you know but for every story like the story of Cain and Abel or for every moving psalm then we have stuff about killing witches and stoning adult, uh, stoning adulterers and, uh, women being treated like chattel, etc. So if you're going to talk about objective morality, maybe you should be intellectually honest and say that we're not necessarily going to find that ideal morality in your religious text. Okay. Uh, next up, um, Next up, is a story that I think has been in the news for a couple of weeks now, but because I'm playing catch-up, I'm just getting to it now. And it's the disturbing story of a woman killed for supposedly burning the Quran, which is bad enough. But then it was revealed that the accusations were most likely false. And, uh... Friend of the show and fellow podcaster, the Mad Humanist, uh, covered this story in his most recent episode. And I thought he did a great job discussing it. Uh, But nevertheless, I'll just for those of you out there who aren't familiar with the story, uh, I guess I'll quickly cover it myself. And I'm actually reading uh, from Reuters right now. And uh, it says here the authors are... uh, Hamid, Chelizi and Krista Mar. Kabul, March 19th. A mob in the Afghan capital killed a woman, set her body on fire and threw it into a muddy river in the heart of Kabul on Thursday, a police official said. "The motive for the killing which took place in a busy area of downtown Kabul was not immediately known," the official said, asking not to be identified because he was not authorized to speak to the media. While Afghanistan is struggling to emerge from the suppression of women under Taliban rule that began in the 1990s, such public attacks, especially in the capital, remain unusual. Women's rights have made gains since the 2001 ousting of the militants who follow a hardline interpretation of Islamic law, but observers worry that progress is at risk as widespread violence against women persists and women remain underrepresented in politics and public life. Local television news channel, it looks like one TV, posted what appeared to be footage of the aftermath of the killing on its website and said the mob attacked the woman because she had burned pages from the Quran, Islam's holy book. The family of the victim met with Kabul police's criminal investigation team and said their daughter had been suffering from mental illness for many years, a security official said. A spokesman for the Ministry of the Interior confirmed four suspects had been arrested in connection with the attack on his official Twitter account. Human rights groups have raised concerns whether enough was done to stop the mob. I would certainly hope the government would be trying to arrest and prosecute everyone who was involved and doing an internal investigation into whether the police response was appropriate, said Heather Barr, a senior researcher for women's rights in Asia for Human Rights Watch. Well, I guess so the silver lining might be that at least there were some arrests made and also something that gave me a little hope and I'm trying to rem- I'm trying to remember if I heard this from the Mad Humanist account or if I heard it from maybe the Young Turks or another news source but but supposedly I think Afghani women's rights activists uh women were there saying that you know, the people who did this should be burned as they burned her. And I'm not saying I necessarily think these guys should be burned alive. But what I like about that is the the, the show of spirit or audacity that um, at least it seems that women's rights are maybe claring to maintain or gain some kind of foothold here and that there are brave souls in that part of the world speaking up uh, against these acts of violence and speaking on behalf of these victims who can no longer speak for themselves, and uh, it doesn't say in this article, but I did hear a news report saying that, and maybe it was from the Mad Humanist that uh, it turns out that, as I said, the, the accusations were most likely false, and that should be neither here nor there. You shouldn't kill anyone for burning. Any book, uh, but I guess it just adds further insult when you know the poor woman wasn't even guilty of the ridiculous crime which uh, she was, uh, which she was uh, accused of uh, by this mob. And, you know, it is funny. Uh, in the interim, since uh, the last episode, as usual, I've been watching and listening to a lot of theist versus atheist. Uh, debates, or even going back and watching things like Jenk Huger going toe to toe with uh, Sam Harris, and as much as I, you know, love the Young Turks, um, I've mentioned before, just you know, speaking plainly, that I think in the wake of that whole Ben Affleck Sam Harris debacle that occurred on Real Time with Bill Maher, that Jenk uh, Huger has been. A bit too PC, shall we say, with uh, when it comes to kind of bending over backwards to try to apologize uh, for, it, for Islam or whatever. And do I think the majority of Muslims are good people? Yes. Uh, do I think that just like, you know, I was just talking about the good and the bad in the Judeo-Christian Bible, do I think that although there's a lot of bad, nasty stuff in the Quran, that there's also some good inspirational stuff in the Quran? Yes. Uh, do I think there's good things that have come out of Islamic culture? Yes, I've talking I've talking about my love for the uh, Sufi poet Rumi. I've talking about I've, I've spoken about the kind of golden age of Islam, Uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, where the Islamic world was a kind of hub of learning and scientific investigation. And we know that if it wasn't for Islamic scholars, there's a good chance a lot of classical Greek literature and things like that may have been lost to us. They uh, kind of translated and transmitted a a lot of the old um, great works of philosophy, etc., And recently, I think I posted an episode on the Weekend Out Facebook page. This event dates back from 2006, but it still really holds up, and it's really great. There was this Beyond Belief seminar, I guess maybe we'll call it, where a large group of prominent scientists got together, and there was a bunch of great panel discussions uh, people like Lawrence Krauss, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris—a um, real a lot of heavy hitters were there, and um, and even a lot of uh, staunch atheists or anti-religious people were talking, uh, and these were scientists we're talking about how much we owe to that kind of golden age of Islam when it comes to things like mathematics, uh, scientific inquiry, etc. And and it's interesting how, you know, there were people like Al-Ghazali. I think he was technically a Sufi and he was kind of uh, religiously conservative, I think. But also made some important scientific discoveries, but at the same time, there was also uh, a lot of prominent uh, Islamic scholars who were critical of religion, who were even what we would probably call uh, atheists by modern standards. It'd be interesting. (laughs) I don't know how they'd fare. Uh, I don't know how they'd uh, fare nowadays. Um, But speaking of that beyond belief, uh, seminar or whatever it was. It was a multi-day event. And I think the whole, it's on YouTube, it's broken into 10 parts. Each part is like an hour or two long. It's unbelievable. Um, It's just hour after hour of great content. The only thing that got me a little hot under the collar is, um, it was actually kind of amazing how PC, some of these atheistic scientists were. There were a a lot of prominent scientists there who admitted right up front that they were atheists, who didn't believe in the supernatural claims of religion, who were even willing to acquiesce that yeah, religion's responsible for some bad stuff, etc. There's a lot of nonsense and connection with it. And yet they kind of bent over backwards to act as religious apologists and kind of scold people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. And there's some interesting uh, interactions where you can see Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and people like that really butting heads to the point where it's kind of cringeworthy or um, uncomfortable to watch with these kind of apologists. Uh, These fellow atheists who just seem to be towing this really PC line, and like I said, you know, there's a lot of things I like about religion, but I also think that people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins do a lot of good by not only preaching to the the choir, the converted, so to speak. I think when you do that, you know, when when you write books for fellow atheists that maybe have a strong or striding or unapologetic tone that helps to strengthen other non-believers. It, it lets them know that they're not alone. It lets them know, know that it's all right to be a non-believer. It lets them know that there's other people who also share those thoughts and, and, uh, it, it, you know, etc. Um, and also, I think those books can make a difference, even to people who maybe haven't made up their minds. You know, um, and I think that if you take what Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins say at face value, that uh, they have influenced a lot of so-called fence-sitters, and that Sam Harris will talk about how he, in his words, receives thousands of emails from people who were kind of on the fence and were d- deeply uh, affected by his writing. And you know me, uh, I've kind of painted myself as a kinder, gentler atheist, the sometimes there's, you know, like atheist billboards put out at the holidays and things that I find over the top, but no one's forcing you to watch an atheist debate or lecture. No one's forcing you to buy an atheist book. You know, um, no one's going to your house and sitting next to you and cracking open the God delusion and reading it out loud while you're trying to pray. You know what I mean? Or thumbing the rosary or whatever. Um, so I think it's good that there's strong, kind of strided voices out there like uh, Dawkins and Harris and, of course, the um, the late Christopher Hitchens, one of my personal intellectual heroes. Um, another thing I found interesting that actually, Lawrence Krauss was there. Like I said, this was 2006. And he was a little PC himself, and he was taking others to task for being too kind of volatile or strident or too anti-religious. And he was saying how he had grown and how years before, years earlier, he would have probably been more in the mindset of a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris, but he had kind of evolved on the subject. And this was 2006. And of course, now we know uh, Lawrence Krauss should almost be made, you know, one of the uh, four horsemen. He's he's a pretty staunch atheist. And I sometimes cringe when I watch Lawrence Krauss debate religious people because sometimes I feel like instead of giving logical arguments why religion is flawed or why we shouldn't believe the supernatural claims, he could just be kind of really insulting or even comes off as being not just dismissive, but almost uneducated on religion, as smart and as great of a a physicist as he is. So I just thought it was kind of ironic that one of these PC uh, scientists that we saw in the uh, Beyond Belief uh, you know, talking at the Beyond Belief series was Lawrence Krauss, when nowadays he's kind of, really like two peas in a pod with uh, Richard Dawkins. So I don't know if he evolved again on the topic, you know. (laughs) But it's kind of interesting for those of us who know uh, Lawrence Krauss's um, current position on religion. It was kind of interesting to kind of hear him almost uh, kind of towing this kind of more PC line back in uh, 2006. it's funny, I I think I noticed a kind of... uh, Maybe an evolution in the thinking of Neil deGrasse Tyson, too. I think recently, and I can't believe I did this, I felt like I willingly jumped down the rabbit hole just to see what the heck he was up to. I downloaded the William Lane Craig podcast, and that is a frigging trip, man. That is far out. Um, but for a non believer to sit there and, and like, I, I think I was, uh, I was playing a video game and uh, sometimes when I'm playing video games, I like to let, uh, you know, just kind of documentaries or whatever play in the background. And so I was listening to episode after episode of, uh, William Lane Craig's, uh, podcast, just letting the feed go. And it it, it was, it was trippy. But anyway, um, he did this one thing where he played parts of an interview with, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, then he and his sidekick, just kind of, uh, just kind of bagged on it, you know? I don't know if you can hear my voice kind of fading as I move my head. I'm watching the, uh, season finale of The Walking Dead, and I keep checking the look if the commercials are over. (laughs) That's my dedication to the show. Now, I'm usually more focused than that, but come on, man, it's the season finale. Um... And I'm trying to get this show done on a Sunday night before I have to start the uh, work week. But anyway, in the interview, Neil deGrasse Tyson was kind of removing himself from uh, or trying to distance himself from, you know, the the kind of a, the modern atheist movement and, uh, you know, trying to identify himself more as an educator, which I think is true. I think that he has a low tolerance for nonsense and he'll call him like he sees him when it comes to, uh, kind of religious or superstitious claims that can't be backed up by evidence. Um, but it was interesting because during the beyond belief seminar, he got a little strided himself and he was talking about, uh, you know, these kind of numbers about how many scientists are non-believers, uh, as opposed to what percent uh, are religious and I think he might have been talking about the Academy of Scientists and uh, something like 85% were non-believers and the and small 15% were uh, religious. And he was saying, we shouldn't be asking why so much of the public is religious. We should be asking why these 15% of scientists are religious. And we should be trying to figure out how we can make it 100% that are uh, atheists or non-believers, you know. And then uh, Lawrence Krauss and Neil deGrasse Tyson were kind of butting heads. And uh, Lawrence Krauss was sticking up for the religious minority and saying, I don't know why you insist on trying to change them. They're doing science. Leave them alone. So it was an interesting exchange. And I actually agree with both of them in a way. I agree with Neil deGrasse Tyson. That'd be great if scientists didn't have to compartmentalize, if they didn't have to, you know, keep their wacky religious beliefs in one compartment. And, uh, so they could do their science. And so that we didn't have to worry about the, uh, religious compartment bleeding into the science or whatever. Um, But at the same time, you know, people have to be free to believe what they want. And um, if a person can compartmentalize and still do a competent job or maybe even a great job as a scientist, then, you know, maybe just let it be. Um, That doesn't mean that we can fully understand it. I mean, still to this day, it always kind of uh, boggles my mind how, let's say... uh, Francis Collins, you know, this brilliant scientist, um, headed up the Human Genome Project, and yet he's kind of a quote unquote born again Christian. I don't know if he's technically what you would call a born again Christian, but he had this religious experience. Uh, if you're like me and you're kind of well versed on. The backstories of all these different figures that you probably already know, the uh, popular anecdote where he was hiking and he saw a frozen waterfall that was kind of, you know, in three parts and it reminded him of the Holy Trinity and he was in awe of this waterfall. He fell to his knees in the dewy grass and became a Christian. Uh, <laughs> So that always kind of blows my mind. You know, how can someone be a person of reason and uh, be scientifically minded on the one hand and then fully embrace something without evidence in another regard? And that reminds me of this kind of insight that I had recently. I noticed that a a lot of prominent Christian defenders are uh, people who embrace religion later on in life. Like, uh, well, William Lane Craig was kind of raised in a kind of secular home and embraced Christianity in his late teens, I think. Francis Collins didn't have a particularly uh, religious upbringing. I think he said his parents were almost these kind of, like, hippies who... um didn't really provide him with any kind of particular religious education or instruction. Um, and I think there's a couple of, uh, like maybe Alistair, is it Alistair McGrath? Um, uh, there's a couple of prominent British Christian apologists who are um, also people who, I, I think Alistair McGrath might have been a, uh, an atheist when he was younger and then kind of found Christianity, and I notice a lot of people like that seem to focus on the positive effect religion has in their life, and they kind of diminish or dismiss, they're dismissive of the damage that it can have on people when they're raised religious. Um, Because I think for them, you know, religion's the thing that saves them they felt kind of lost or they needed something, so then they filled that hole with religion. Whereas when you're raised religious um, and you don't have any choice, you're indoctrinated, you know. Um, And I'm thinking about things like the doctrine of hell. As super religious as William Lane Craig is, I remember watching a debate with him and him kind of scoffing at the idea that, people fear God or fear hell or this and that, something like that, you know, try being raised Catholic. (laughs) Guilt, uh, fear of God, fear of hell, um, to some degree are part and parcel. Oh, there might be some kind of more enlightened social justice Catholics, you know, who kind of play down the emphasis on those things, uh, who have kind of a, to quote my British friends, more of an airy-fairy approach to Catholicism, but old-school traditional Catholicism can breed a lot of uh, neuroses in a child. I think it's easy for uh, people who converted or embraced Christianity later in life as this thing that saved them. It's easy for them to dismiss this stuff. But uh, such doctrines can have a powerful effect on you as a child. And like I said, I didn't leave Christianity because of that baggage. Or I didn't, I don't even know if I ever officially left Christianity. You know, it's my, as I've explained previously on the show many times, it's just like my reason worked like acid on my faith. As negative as I found some of those things about religion, like the fear of divine punishment, the fear of hell, and, you know, things like that, um, that wasn't the reason why I stopped believing. In fact, as I've often said, the idea of there not being an afterlife or a god for a long time in my life, that was terrifying, but I was intellectually honest enough, or at least I wanted to be, where I said, I can't just embrace this stuff because it makes me feel better. You know, the idea of an afterlife or some kind of personal God or something. I wanted to know if those things were actually true. And uh, even though I tried to believe, reason just eroded my faith. And and ironically, the more I studied things like the history of religion, etc., the more apparent it became to me that those things are man-made. You know, and I think I discussed this in my interview with Steve from the uh, Skeptical podcast, the uh, dad from the UK who's caught up in this kind of controversial uh, court decision where he was ordered to take his uh, children to Catholic Mass. But I talked about how, you know, even though I'm a skeptic, a non-believer, a person of reason, even though, in a sense, my reason wouldn't allow me to believe it, even if I wanted to, that I still uh, feel the weight of that baggage of uh, things like the fear of hell, uh, all that old Catholic guilt and stuff. I still carry the kind of the weight of that stuff around with me, even though I'm no longer a believer. And I think it's because stuff that happens to you in childhood or that you're taught in childhood when you're still so malleable and re- and, and receptive to uh, ideas or doctrine, uh, it, it can that stuff can stay with you for the long haul. It's hard to escape. But I'm trying to think how I got off on this very long tangent. Uh, I think I digressed quite a bit. I was talking about a story about the woman being killed for supposedly burning a Quran and I was talking about people who are PC or too PC when it comes to Islam and I was talking about how even though I think I have a fit uh, even though I think I have a pretty fair-minded approach to Islam where like uh, the judeo-christian bible I think there's good and bad stuff in the Quran as well and that we shouldn't obviously demonize all Muslims um, was Islam probably the second largest religion in the world next to Christianity Um, well there are roughly like 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and relatively speaking it's only a very small minority who are committing all these heinous acts in the name of religion whether it's you know ISIS, Boko Haram people committing honor killings uh things like that but still we have to be honest and when these people say they're doing things in the name of religion we should admit that these things are religion is at least partly the cause of these vile actions Uh, especially when it comes to things like killing someone for supposedly burning the Quran. i mean you're killing someone for burning a holy book You're killing someone for religious reasons. Now, you might be able to try to read in these cultural and social factors in there and things like that. Maybe attitudes towards women that date back even before Islam or something like that. And maybe there's some bit of truth to that. But it's still a murder done in the name of religion for religious reasons. These people were taught that it's taboo to desecrate a certain book, a religious book, to the point where they felt justified in killing someone because of it. So religion in cases like this does apparently have something to do with it. I just think that we should be honest about that. We don't have to ignore what's good about certain belief systems or demonize an entire group of people. But we should be honest when certain religious teachings drive people to do bad things, or we should take people at their word when they, to some degree at least, when they claim to have done something heinous in the name of religion. I'm trying to think if it was during that Beyond Belief uh, seminar or, or whatever it was, but Sam Harris made a good point where he was talking to one of these people who was acting as kind of a religious apologist. And uh, he said something like when some evangelist or humanitarian does something good in the name of religion, you take their word for it. But you won't take the word of someone like Osama bin Laden when they say they're doing what they did in the name of religion. Which I thought was an excellent point, and it's one I've never really heard before, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks a bit. I know Sam Harris catches a lot of flack for his position on Islam, and uh, I've always said from the outset of this show that that my focus as a non-believer is kind of more personal, and maybe it's to my detriment or says something self-involved about me that I don't get as caught, even though I do cover news stories about when people do awful things in the name of religion, first and foremost, my focus as a non-believer is wrestling with the big issues and and trying to get at the truth of things about life's big questions. I'm not as preoccupied about the social ills that religion might cause or... um, what part religion plays in the the mess that is the geopolitical stage right now, you know? Uh, how much of a part does religion play in terrorism, in war, and uh, how much of it is just good old human tribalism? I don't know. So I'm probably not as sanguine about that stuff as Sam Harris is. But I, I still think he makes a lot of great common sense points in his analysis about these things and that he catches a lot of flack for it. Well, here it is a day later, and I've returned to finish the show. Um, so where did I leave off? I think characteristically... I uh, meandered off topic for a while. I think I was talking about the story of the woman who was killed for burning uh, the Koran, um, supposedly burning the Quran, and it looks like uh, she was falsely accused. Um, either way, just to uh, kind of put this story to bed and move on to the next one, don't kill people for burning books, and uh, try not to kill people at all. Okay, I think that does it for that story. Um, well, next up, I have a story about Ted Cruz, and if you follow politics at all, I'm sure you, uh, know who he is. Uh, he's a senator from Texas, a, uh, staunch Republican, and probably one of the smarmiest human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. Um... Well, he's decided to throw his hat in the ring, and he's uh, officially announced that he's going to run for president. And it's very interesting. And now, I've discussed my politics on the show before. I like to think of myself as independent, but if I'm going, if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I do lean heavily left on a lot of issues, uh, especially things like gay rights and things like that and uh, fighting for the separation of church and state, uh, legalizing of marijuana, etc. And in full disclosure, although I'm not completely happy with President Obama, I did vote for him twice and it's funny, remember how Obama used to get attacked all the time by the right with uh, especially from the far or fringe right Um, with, with all these accusations about not being a real American, uh, whether that was voiced explicitly or implied, uh, remember the whole ongoing, very ugly birth or scandal, um, people demanding to see, uh, Barack Obama's birth certificate, even though he had a, I believe a copy of his certificate. And there was, um birth announcements in the uh, Hawaiian newspaper from when he was born. Um, But still, this was kind of an ongoing theme among the uh, far right and the Tea Party, that Obama wasn't a real American, he wasn't born in America, blah, blah, blah. Well, now, Ted Cruz, the Tea Party favorite, is uh, running and very strange that we're really not hearing a peep from the right about the fact that he's originally Canadian. Uh, but anyway, this isn't what I planned on talking about. Uh, Ted Cruz made some rather offensive remarks regarding atheists uh, recently, uh, specifically atheists in the military. And this is from a newspaper uh called the Dallas Morning News, and it's entitled, Senator Ted Cruz Antagonizes Atheist Soldiers. Cruz stands up for his beliefs. Senator Ted Cruz stated in Iowa, I kind of thought it was the job of chaplains to be insensitive to atheists. This was in reference to a chaplain who posted on a military blog, there are no atheists in foxholes. There are, of course, many atheists in foxholes. The Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers is a group of atheists and agnostic service members who fought for our nation. Now, imagine if someone that stated that it was the job of atheist officers in the military to be insensitive to Christian soldiers. It would be deemed rightly outrageous. Well, it is outrageous for a man who wants to be the next president of our nation to state that it is the job of chaplains to abuse their authority in order to win converts to Senator Cruz's religion. As an atheist in the military, I didn't believe it was the job of the chaplains to convert me. Chaplains exist for members of the military who require their services not to spread the Christian gospel. If Senator Cruz becomes president, he needs to know as commander-in-chief that there are atheists in the military and that their rights must be respected. And I wish it said who wrote this, uh, and it's well worded and it's, uh, written as a letter to the editor, uh, but I don't see the the name. Oh, okay, it's underneath uh, Jerome McCollum uh, from Dallas. Then underneath it, from uh, the opposing side, it has a writer praising Ted Cruz for standing up for Christianity. And I originally heard this story via the Young Turks. I tried to find the audio, uh, but I had trouble locating it. But yeah, those are his words, and the Young Turks uh, quoted that same sentence. I kind of thought it was the job of chaplains to be insensitive to atheists. And here, we're supposed to be a country that celebrates freedom of religion, and here we're dealing with the religious rights of people in the military, the people that, whether or not you agree with every war, the people who still... um, fight and die, you know, so we don't have to. Um, and I'm almost speechless, uncharacteristically. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. As I said, uh, I think that Ted Cruz is not only incredibly uh, smarmy, but incredibly opportunistic, too. And I wouldn't put it past him to say just about anything to pander to his base. But obviously, there's people of all ethnicities, creeds, and religions in in the military, just like the country. The military is a melting pot. And I can actually remember, uh, I have a couple of friends in the military. Uh, One's really a a devout Catholic. I don't know if he still is. We haven't spoken in a few years. Uh, The other one... um, I don't even really know how concerned with religion he is. But I remember when they first joined the military uh, years and years ago, they did this little thing for their friends back home where they would have uh, dog tags made up for us. And, you know, they would tell us the different religions that were offered or whatever, you know, that could be put on the dog tags. And and atheism, uh, you could actually state that you were an atheist on your dog tag, I believe. I think so, if I remember correctly. At the time, I asked my friends to make me a dog tag that said, uh, Buddhist on it. And I believe whoever made the tag actually misspelled Buddhist. <laughs> I think also for a long time there's been Satanists, members of the Church of Satan in the military, and I think you can even have Satanist on your dog tag. I think uh, that was one of the choices we joked about, but that was a serious option. I hope I didn't imply a minute ago that atheism is a religion by saying you could have it on your dog tag. And you guys know my stance on that. I don't want to get into the, go on to a whole nother hour long uh, digression about uh, that. Um, But I guess my point is that it's obviously offensive to me uh, as a non believer myself to pick on people in general for being atheists, but to pick on a soldier for being an atheist when, as far as, I I mean, I've never served as far as I know, uh, Ted Cruz has certainly never served. Um, And here he is making smarmy comments about atheists in the military. It kind of reminds me of people like, uh, I think George W. Bush served in the national guard or something like that. Um, But it reminds me of other uh, chicken hawks like Rumsfeld and uh, Dick Cheney who seemed very eager to send other people to Iraq to lose their lives uh, but had never fought themselves. And I think Cheney infamously had a very high number of uh, deferments or, or whatever. I think he probably came from a well-to-do family. And I think like a lot of people during the Vietnam era used college as an excuse to get out of, you know, to avoid the draft. Um, when other people didn't have that luxury. And I can remember when nine 11 happened, uh, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it. I think I was so pissed off about nine 11. You probably could have talked me into invading any country. (laughs) And, at the beginning, I remember thinking that, okay, uh, let's invade Iraq, you know? Um, and there was a lot of demo. It wasn't just Republicans. There, there were a lot of Democrats and, in, in uh, Congress too, um, who supported, uh, the idea of invading Iraq. And I think Hillary Clinton originally supported, uh, invading, Ur- uh, Iraq and to his credit, I believe Barack Obama did not. um, But I can remember when I saw those bombs falling on the news, you know, the first initial strikes on Baghdad, I think it was. uh, You know, I got that kind of sinking feeling in my stomach. And it's when you kind of, that moment you remember, this isn't a video game, you know, this isn't a movie. These are real, real bombs and real people we're dealing with. Um... And then, luckily at first, as predicted, they did greet us as liberators, but things quickly went south, and as we know, we never discovered the weapons of mass destruction. Um, So, was Saddam Hussein a bad guy? Yes. Uh, Did he probably deserve to be removed from the face of the earth, along with his um, psychopathic, uh, sadistic sons? Yes. Yes. Uh, and who knows, maybe if if there was a quicker way to remove him, you know, maybe I would have been for that. But that long, drawn-out war in Iraq with uh, all the loss of American life, the loss of civilian life, and even if we had been able to remove Saddam Hussein quickly instead of getting mired down in a long, drawn-out war, we still have to ask ourselves, will we still be dealing with the same consequences, like all these other, you know, all the chaos that was subsequently created and these different factions moving in to fill the uh, kind of power voids. Of course, right now we're dealing with ISIS, who's become this kind of scourge across the Middle East, literally crucifying people, beheading people, forcing women into slavery. Um, And there's a good argument to make that ISIS may never have arisen if we hadn't plunged Iraq into chaos. But anyway, how did I get from Ted Cruz to that? (laughs) Maybe it's because I got on the subject of uh, neocons, Bible-thumping, and people who've never served uh, opening their mouths about the military and deciding uh, who should fight and die. Anyway... But uh, a final note about Ted Cruz. I mean, it's really amazing. You know, the older I get, the more empathetic I try to be, the more I try to put myself in other people's shoes and not just, you know, try to pigeonhole or label people that I find distasteful. Uh, I try to see the, the human being um, and not just some caricature. But Ted Cruz, it's amazing. He really does seem like something out of central casting. Like, if you wanted to cast the stereotypical or the archetypal, slimy, opportunistic, phony as hell politician for a movie or something. It's it's unbelievable. If you're not really in the politics, if you're not familiar with Ted Cruz... You'll see what I'm talking about and that I'm not exaggerating. Go on YouTube or, you know, whatever, Google and look up Ted Cruz and try to find some video of him talking. It is unbelievable. And uh, up next, I have another story uh, dealing with a right-wing politician. This is from the Huff Post Politics. And here's the title, which kind of gives you an idea what you're in for. Colorado Republicans. Baby cut from expectant mother's womb is God punishing America for abortion. Yeah. Oh, and this is that Klingenschmidt guy. I talked about him before. I forget what the story was. But he said something else not too long ago that was completely outrageous. Um... And I believe he's a he's a uh, army chaplain or former army chaplain or something like that. But uh, let's see what he's up to now. An embattled state lawmaker is unrepentant after referring to a crime in Colorado last week in which a stranger stabbed an expectant mother and removed her unborn child from her womb as God punishing America for its stance on abortion. This is the curse of God upon America for our sin of not protecting innocent children in the womb, State Rep. Gordon Klingenschmidt, a uh, Republican from Colorado Springs, said on his YouTube channel Tuesday. Part of that curse for our rebellion against God as a nation is that our pregnant women are ripped open. In the segment excerpted by Right Wing Watch, Klingenschmidt points to Hosea 13.16 in the Bible, which reads, the people of Samaria must bear the guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pe- their pregnant women ripped open. He then considered whether the biblical quote has prophetic significance to the United States today and requests viewers join him in prayer to ask for an end to the Holocaust, which is abortion in America. Now, that uh, chapter and verse there, Hosea, uh, Isaiah 13, 16. I don't know if that's the one that sometimes um, you'll hear uh, atheists mention in debates that supposedly there's a part of the Bible. I think Dan Barker talks about this, where it kind of, cele- where it kind of celebrates the, the dashing of children's uh, brains against rocks or something like that, something awful like that. Um, so I'm not sure if this is that same verse or not, but it's uh, disturbing nevertheless. Oh yeah, maybe it is. Cause now that I read it again more closely, instead of just, you know, saying the words that I really kind of drink it in, the people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Okay, yeah, so maybe that is the one that uh, you do hear people like Dan Barker uh, quote um, as yet another example of kind of barbaric violence and immorality to be found in certain uh, parts of the Bible. So it seems like that might be saying that, yeah, since you rebelled against God, then the little ones uh, will be dashed to the ground, pregnant women will be ripped open, And that parallels what Klingenschmitt is saying uh, now. Uh, He's saying that this poor woman who had her unborn child cut out of her womb, um, that that is a punishment from God for abortion. And well, before I even get into my views on abortion, which I've probably expressed on the show before, I mean, what kind of God would that be? If your God is the type of person that would send a mad woman to slice open the baby of an expectant mother and, and rip her unborn baby out, that's not a God that I could respect. It's not a God, even if I thought he actually existed, that I w- would think would be worth worshipping. So, I mean, you, you guys on the far right can keep your disgusting concept concept of God who uh and and isn't that kind of odd that if God's mad because babies are being killed he's going to have more babies killed by being Ripped out of people's wombs early. And I I forget the details of this exact story. I don't know if the baby lived or not. But unfortunately, stories like this aren't all that uncommon. And often, not only the mother, but the baby will also perish. And I don't know if the mother, uh, I can't remember if the mother died or not. Um, I thought I read a story recently where uh, a woman suffered this type of crime and somehow. Um, she actually managed to survive, survive somehow. Um, and this kind of reminds me of my talk on objective morality earlier and, and the point I was making about, uh, okay, if you're a religious person and you want to say you believe in some kind of objective or absolute morality, don't pretend that that ideal morality could be found in your holy book because yeah, there might be some inspirational things about how to treat the poor and things like that in the Bible. Uh, but there's also stuff about putting people to the sword and and uh, ripping babies out of wombs. So let's remember that. And I think I've talked in the past about how, you know, th- there's this um, staunch anti-abortion sentiment uh, um, from people on the right, from right-wing Christians. And I've talked about how the bible never really seems all that concerned with abortion in fact there seems to be certain laws and um, prescriptions about how people should be compensated if a child is killed as opposed to um, an un- as opposed to an unborn baby uh etc and The recompense is usually a lot smaller for a baby that's, um, inside the womb than outside the womb. And in fact, I think it was a certain number of months or years had to pass before, uh, even a a baby or a small child was recognized as having the same value as an adult human being. And I think I talked about this before where, uh, that probably has something to do with you know the, the um, high mortality rate in the in the ancient world and a good chance that uh, an infant or a small child might not make it to to adulthood so people probably wanted to see if the kid was gonna stick around before you begin to think of it as uh, having the, the same, uh, the same value as an adult, or whatever. Uh, as harsh as that sounds, and my—I've talked. I think I've talked about my views on abortion before. I—I kind of mirror Christopher Hitchens' uh, views, where even though I'm a non-believer, I believe that um, all life has meaning, and all people have a right to live. Um, with some exceptions, say like uh, someone who commits an incredibly heinous uh, act or something like that. Um, but, you know, I've talked about that story about the Pettit family before, that family in Connecticut. I don't want to go into it again, but it haunts me about what was done to that uh, family uh, by uh, two criminals, uh, two psychopaths. So, I'm not sure if people like that you know when you do something that heinous, I think maybe you forfeited your right to live uh but in generally speaking, I believe all life has value, including unborn life. but I also believe in a woman's right to decide what medical procedure she wants to have, what she wants to do with her body, and that's like I've said before, the reason why I think. Abortion is such a a contentious or hot button issue is because it it puts two very important rights at loggerheads. The right of a woman to choose what she does with her own body um, and the right of an individual to life, the right of an unborn, unborn person to life. Then I think there's kind of a spectrum or a sliding scale. And I feel odd being a guy talking about this, you know, um, morally expounding on abortion or whatever. Um, but I think the earlier the abortion takes place, the, uh, quote unquote better, you know, it is, um, the longer you wait, the closer the baby is to being viable, the closer it is to killing an actual human being and not just, you know, a mass of cells or whatever. Um, but I think then there's that caricature among pro-life people that somehow, you know, abortion is something that people do on a whim. You know, let's go have an abortion, uh, nothing else to do. Um, whereas I think an, an abortion is probably one of the hardest decisions, you know, whether or not to get an abortion is probably one of the hardest decisions a woman will ever have to make in her life. And I'm sure if she chooses to have an abortion, it's not going to be a happy day. Um, I'm sure they feel the weight of that decision more than anyone else. And if someone has, you know, an early, uh, an abortion early on, I'm not an embryologist. uh, Is that a real thing? Uh, So, you know, I don't know exactly how formed a, a fetus is at, uh, what stage uh you know at the various stages of gestation but if someone you know i have no problem obviously with uh, morning after pills uh, things like you know those kind of abortifacients if a person has an abortion early on you know i'm not too troubled by it um and then you'll hear all these horror stories about late-term abortions you know fully formed babies being uh partially pulled out of the womb and killed or whatever. Um, I don't know how much of that actually goes on. I think o- often when a when a partial birth abortion happens, it's because there's something horribly wrong with the uh, fetus or, or because there's some kind of risk to the life of the mother. But I always feel odd talking about abortion being a guy, and it's because it's not a decision I'm ever going to have to make. Or um,
1: you know, I've never gone know
0: what's like to have a uh, to carry a life inside me. So I'll just cut myself short on that for now, and change topics. And I think recently, and this is actually more of a positive story, uh, thankfully. But uh, recently, CNN aired. Um, a Commercial for an atheist group, actually, and you don't see many of those on TV. And this is from Patheos, and it says, uh, American Atheist will air its first national TV commercial tonight on CNN. Before and after, and this is dated March 24th, before and after tonight's CNN special, Atheists Inside the World of Non Believers, American Atheist will air its first ever national TV commercial. And I didn't even know. CNN aired that uh, special. I had no idea. I guess maybe I'm contributing to their uh, plummeting ratings. Uh, I used to watch CNN a lot. I actually enjoyed watching uh, Anderson Cooper. I thought it was one of the better, you know, fairer, straight news uh, shows uh, um, on cable, as opposed to you know watching Fox News or MSNBC. Um, I haven't watched. I haven't been uh, watching Anderson Cooper recently, so or CNN in general. So I I didn't know that uh, they had a special about atheists. And I, I didn't download the file, so I'm playing this over my iPad. So I don't know how clearly it will come across through my mic. But I'll uh, I'll play that commercial now. Do you keep your doubts about religion to yourself? You have questions about God that you never ask. We have a better way. American Atheists offers a diverse community for people exploring reality, religion free. American Atheists is leading the charge for equality and the separation of religion and government. Join the most vibrant atheist community in the country. Your voice matters because equality matters. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty cool, and, and to be honest, I don't know a lot about um, the American Atheist Organization. Uh, it's kind of like I said when I first started this podcast, maybe on episode one or episode two, that one of the cool things about being a non-believer and being a free thinker is that you didn't have to be a part of any group, you didn't have to you know, worry about the same type of peer pressure and indoctrination that you did with you know, being uh, part of a religion. So even though I'm a non-believer myself, I actually don't know that much about different uh, atheist groups. So um, let's see. Oh, it continues below. Oh, and it's re- it's commenting on the commercial. Given the nature of AA's billboards, this is relatively tame. So I wonder if they do the, uh, those kind of similar billboards to the uh, Freedom From Religion uh, Foundation's billboards that I sometimes <laughs> criticize. But anyway, I mean, I like that commercial. And I thought it was really positive. It's not saying don't believe in God. It's saying, do you ever have doubts? Do you have a question? Um, and you, even though this is supposed to be a country that reveres the freedom of religion and that was founded by these kind of secular enlightenment figures, unfortunately, you know, it's something you almost become Accustomed to, you don't really stop to think about it. Unfortunately, atheists are treated like a minority in this country. And as I said in the past, an interesting litmus test is can you picture an atheist being elected president? And I still can't. And uh, I think that says a lot. And the fact that it's news when a station airs in a pro atheist commercial that should tell you something too. And it's strange, you know, it was supposed to live in a country, like I said, that values freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that values progress and free thought and things like that. And, uh, scientific innovation. Um, And, you know, according to some polls, I mean, it depends on which poll and it depends on which scientific academy uh, being polled, etc., that, you know, the majority of scientists are uh, nonbelievers or skeptics. And that it would seem to me that often um, being a nonbeliever goes hand in hand with uh, healthy skepticism, with a rational, reason-based worldview, um, that often it's very educated people um, who are atheists or non-believers. All these positive values, you know, skepticism, uh, reason, education, um, science, and yet atheists are still treated like, um, well, villains basically. And I know I, I used to talk about how I think I lived in kind of a bubble because most of my friends uh, kind of share my worldview uh, with some exceptions. I, I never really realized that um, I never really realized just how kind of prejudice some people are against Atheists. You know, then I started this podcast, and when I'd be mingling at parties and stuff, and I would uh, mention how I host a podcast that's geared mostly towards atheists and agnostics, and I'm somewhere personally in that ballpark, you know. And uh, sometimes the negative reactions I'd get, I mean, it's kind of startling. Um, at the same time, there'd also often be some positive reactions. Sometimes from, you know, college-educated people, people who studied science, etc. And uh, other times, from salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar people, people who maybe weren't the most educated people, but their common sense just led them to doubt, you know, on their own. Um, but, but I think it's time in this country that we join the rest of the civilized modern West and stop uh, demonizing uh, atheists. But with that being said, I guess I'll call this uh, episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. You can uh, like the show on Facebook. Please do. Uh, You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Um, You can listen to the show on Stitcher. You can subscribe to the show or review the show through uh, iTunes. You can also go to the official Weekend Out Podbean page. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. And you can check out the archives, uh, donate 99 cents or however much you feel via the PayPal widget at the bottom of the page. There's a lot of alliteration. Or now you can uh, buy the, um, the History of uh, St. Patrick uh, audio documentary, uh, by following the link that you can find on Facebook or in the description of this, uh, episode. Um, and soon that should be available on iTunes too. And I'm going to try to produce more kind of mini audio documentaries in the future. All right. Until next time. Thank you.